0: Discerninghearts.com presents Christian Apologetics with Dr. R.R. Reno. Dr. Reno is the editor at First Things, a journal of religion, culture, and public life. He has also served as a professor of theology at Creighton University. His theological work has been published in many academic journals. Essays and opinion pieces on religion, public life, contemporary culture, and current events have appeared in Commentary and The Washington Post. He's also the author of numerous books, including Fighting the Noonday Devil. This series explores numerous facets of faith and reason in the life of the church and the world. Grounded on the work of giants such as St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, Blessed John Newman, Blessed John Paul II, G.K. Chesterton, Blaise Pascal, and Stephen Barr, Dr. Reno helps us to open our minds to make the journey to our hearts. Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Professor Reno. A
1: pleasure to be here.
0: We have been scanning and reflecting on Christian apologetics through many centuries and some wonderful masters of the ability to be able to translate our faith and what we believe into a way that we can absorb it, but also to refute a lot of the arguments of the world. We've looked at everyone from Aquinas to Bonaventure to Newman, and it is quite wonderful that we're able to, as we approach the end of this, to look at someone who has kind of had a renaissance maybe in the last maybe yeah, 10 so. years or yeah. so, G.K. Chesterton.
1: Yeah, he's a fascinating figure, you know, born in the 19th century and sort of flourished in the first half of the 20th century, and he died in the 1930s, um, and, uh, uh, you know, kind of an extraordinary literary figure, jur- journalist, uh, art critic, um, uh, not really formally trained, went to art school instead of going off to college, uh, but but clearly a, a verbal genius. Anybody who, who reads his works will see all the wordplay and all of the um, clever sentences. And he he writes with what uh, um, I tell my students is a reversible raincoat sentence. Hmm. You know, um, ask not what you can do for your country, but what your country can do for you. Or how's that going? The other way around, I guess, in the famous John Kennedy speech. That kind of inverted sentence that you can turn one way or the other. Um, So he's a a lot of fun to read. And that's one reason why I think he has a perennial appeal. Um, And he also has... um, he has a very um, a very winsome picture of Christian faith as um, a fulfillment of our our natural aptitude as uh, rational, creative um, uh, creatures. Um, so it's that I think that's not only is he kind of a fun writer, but the spirit of his work is very joyous and very happy and very um, optimistic. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, I think that's always, uh, uh, you know, when, when when one of the criticisms of Christianity is that, oh, well, you know, life of faith, it's all sacrifice and, you know, sackcloth and ashes and kneeling long hours and denying yourself. Well, here you have a writer that really puts an accent on the joy of faith.
0: His experience, I think, that was the first of actually sitting and debating with those who would claim that atheistic mantle like a George Bernard Shaw or maybe an H.G. Wells in front of an audience. I mean, because all the people we have met so far have been writing essentially and teaching in a, either a university system or from a seat within the church.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, he was friends with them, uh, uh, Shaw and Wells and these sorts of folks. And uh, and he, 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 he would love to... Uh, to go to these public debates and uh, evidently was a great performer, very Mm -hmm. witty and really quick on his feet. And so, uh, although he's a very rotund man, it's kind of hard to imagine him being quick on his feet, but in the, in the mental sense, he was very quick. Um, And, uh, uh, and, and and I think had a large influence on um, kind of intellectual culture in his era. I mean, he made Christianity and Catholicism uh, uh, seem Cool. I mean, not mm-hmm. to you know to use a, a now old-fashioned term that Chesterton would never even have known in his own day, uh, but it kind of made it. It just made it. People go, "Wow, hey, there's a really smart person who's really engaged in contemporary uh, issues who thinks that his Catholic faith is the is the linchpin that holds it all together."
0: Interesting that coming from a self-proclaimed agnostic background as a young boy and then as you point out he was an art critic he would find his way and reason his way into believing in a creator and then eventually and even becoming a member of the church
1: yeah i mean i think that what he as he tells the story and and in, in his in his wonderful book orthodoxy he, he 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 gives a defense of christianity in the modern era but he organizes it kind of around a kind of this is how I came to see these things, kind of a semi-autobiographical approach. And he talks about how, how he, um, you know, he he would go to me, you know, meetings of socialists and, and vegetarians and, and so on, and, uh, and he would find that they, they, he was attracted, in other words, to, I guess we, we would call it idealism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a youthful person wants to make the world a better place and so on, and he found that um, he, he they all, they all seemed to be only half true, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, or they were tr- they were trying a vegetarianism. For instance, was trying to uh, uh, it does matter what you eat, you know, and and, uh, and and compassion for animals is an important thing, but that it was trying to use something I don't know relatively insignificant in order to make it cosmically significant or, or socialism, you know, it's important how, how we as a society organize ourselves to, uh, promote, promote the common good. That's really key. But there was a kind of, uh, religious fervor, like, let's say in both of those areas. Mm -hmm. And, um, and seeing this sort of religious fervor, he, he began to, um, he began to wonder what, what the right sort of balance is, um, and what the where 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 does where does one find, you know, true religion or, or something that's actually workable and feasible, and then when he when he started to he realized that that the people he hung around with the sort of progressive free thinking crowd, um, that they were, that they weren't really free thinking they had their, all their own dogmas so to speak and that they they, he, he has a wonderfully funny passage where he talks about how, Christianity is criticized for being too pessimistic. Doctor Original Sin, of course. And at the same time, in the next breath, criticized for being too optimistic, life after death, and uh, and that Christianity is on the one hand criticized for its violence, crusades and so forth, and then at the next moment criticized for its pacifism, his Sermon on the Mount, for Francis of Assisi. And this caused him to go, wait a minute, how could it be both too optimistic and too pessimistic, too violent and too too submissive, too arrogant, and too humble. Um, and so this made him begin to wonder whether or not Christianity didn't actually have um, the, what, he, what he often refers to in, in this book, orthodoxy, the kind of balancing point upon which the diversity and complexity of human life can actually make sense. Mm-hmm. So instead of a system or a syllogism, what Chesterton typically sees that the coherence of life depends upon having the right center of gravity.
0: So very important for him was that there had to be certain standards. Would you say he really spoke out about moral relativism at a time when they really didn't call it moral relativism?
1: Right. Well, that's that's the idea, for instance, that um, Christianity is criticized for being dogmatic and authoritarian. And... Um, and as I as I was saying, part of his kind of movement to faith was the realization that, now wait a minute, he's hanging out with all these socialists and so forth who are profoundly dogmatic. Um so that you can't be a progressive unless you have a measure by which you can measure progress. Uh you can't champion change or revolution unless you have a principle or a standard that contemporary society is not living up to. And so um, as he put it in one of his memorable phrases, I think I got this one right, we need rules not only for ruling, but for rebelling. That mm-hmm. is to say, a rule, obviously, is what we use to organize society. And, that, and that, that's obviously the source of authority for secular government. Why do we prohibit murder? Why do we prohibit theft? Well, because it's wrong. Um, but that same rule... Is what inspires people to overthrow unjust governments, because instead of compromising pragmatically, they say, "Well, no, you can't compromise with this because it is wrong." Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, this is kind of—I think part of his genius is the way in which, in contemporary debates, often the um, uh, the there's a kind of tendency rhetorically to separate sort of the good guys from the bad guys, and. The good guys are flexible, inclusive, and so on. The bad guys are rigid, dogmatic, uh, and exclusive. And um, I mean, Chester didn't didn't wouldn't didn't live long enough to, to you know enter the our time mm-hmm. um, when you have you know. I remember one of my friends pointed out to me a, a church sign by the highway that said, um, "We include everybody who includes everybody." Uh, which actually, as my friend pointed out, turns out to be not very many people. <laughs> 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 so that becomes, right. like, you know, tolerance becomes its own dogma, mm-hmm. so to speak, or inclusivity becomes its own dogma, or relevance becomes its own dogma. Um, and, uh, and Chesterton just had a great nose for this sort of thing, um, and an ability to, uh, to draw it out. And this is one of the reasons why, even though the book is 100 years old, it's really very timely, and you, you, feel, you feel that uh, uh, his, his kind of vigorous, fun, kind of witty engagement with um, secular critics of Christianity uh, are still really quite, quite helpful today.
0: It is. You have to laugh when he compares madmen and materialists, but they think the same.
1: They think the same, and, and this goes back to the notion that um, we make sense out of life when we find the proper point of gravity, center of gravity. Mm -hmm. And the madman and the materialist are both people who have gone, if you will, off the rails or have lost that center of gravity. And how does this happen? Well, I mean, for the madman, uh, uh, it happens, obviously, a person who's mentally ill for lots of reasons. Mm -hmm. But one manifestation might be a kind of insistence on a single point to the exclusion of reason. So someone is paranoid for instance thinks that they're going to be assassinated or that their food is being poisoned and so on and 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 I mean I've known people who are in a very mild sense paranoid and and not not institutionalized but and and you know you kind of walk away saying it's really it's hard to live a life where the diversity of reality is being crammed into this maniacal single preoccupation or concern and um uh And that is, that must be difficult to Mm -hmm. overcome, and and people do try to overcome that um, in in their treatment. Um, But the materialist is doing the same thing, trying to cram the diversity of human reality into a single system. Uh, It is the case that sometimes people are out to get you. That's the famous joke, you know. Uh, if people are out to get you, then right. It's not paranoia. It's realism, you know? (laughs) Uh, and it is the case that we are material beings. I mean, my body is material and so on, but it's a kind of mania that wants to reduce all human experience to material things. Um, and so it's always kind of brilliant the way he draws that out and clever and, um, and also again, uh, sort of at least, you know, my experience, um, you know, listening to lecturers uh, who espouse a kind of strict materialism, uh, it it kind of fits. I think, ooh, what's going on with that? You know, or another example of a mania might be a kind of strict utilitarianism that everything at the end of the day depends upon the aggregate amount of experience, pleasure, or pain. Mm -hmm. And so you get someone like Peter Singer, who's really a very smart man, but who teaches at Princeton and has advocated... That um, you know that rights of animals are the same as human beings, and that because uh, newborn infants don't have aren't sensate in in the way you know that in the way that uh, people have achieved a high degree of consciousness, we can kill them and so on and so forth. That you you kind of listen to him talk and you think there's a man whose moral uh, experience is in the grip of a theory, uh, and it's a kind of mania that's taken over what you and I would think of as just so nor- normal moral perceptions. So Chesterton looks around himself in modern life and thinks that an awful lot of modern philosophy is in the grips of manias of various sorts.
0: <laughs> we'll return in just a moment to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. This is Dr. Anthony Lillis and Chris McGregor, and we invite you to join us in a a once-in-a-lifetime Discerning Hearts Trinitarian Pilgrimage throughout the Holy Land. This will be a unique opportunity for contemplative prayer, spiritual teaching, and fellowship in one of the holiest areas on the earth. The place is touched by the lives of Jesus, Mary, and the apostles. During this time, we will also walk closely in the company of the prophet Elijah through the most miraculous moments in salvation history, our history, which would later become pages in the gospel. Along with Sister Magdalite Balduc of the Community of the Beatitudes, the community of the famous Father Jacques Philippe, we hope to lead you into a new encounter with the great mysteries of our faith and a renewal of your devotion to the Lord. Join us May 26th through June 2nd, 2020. Please visit DiscerningHearts.com for a full itinerary and learn more about the contemplative Discerning Hearts Trinitarian Pilgrimage to the Holy Land. A teaching from St. Paul from his letter to the Ephesians. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the disobedient. So do not be associated with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For light produces every kind of goodness and righteousness and truth. Try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the fruitless works of darkness. Rather, expose them. For it is shameful even to mention the things done by them in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Watch carefully, then, how you live, not as foolish persons, but as wise, making the most of the opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore do not continue in ignorance, But try to understand what is the will of the Lord. And do not get drunk on wine, in which lies debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and playing to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. We now return to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. What I love about him is that he has such a great love for the human person that in in how we were created and that gift of imagination that that is something so unique that if you try to distill it down to what you just spoke of to try to say that we're on par with a certain animals or anything like that, that there's something missing. That's the thing that Chesterton will say that you just know there's something missing in that argument. But in a lot of cases, we don't know how to respond to that.
1: Yeah. He, I mean, your, your imagination is a key category for him. Um, Uh, so um, the question might be something like this. The apologetic question might be something like this. You could say that we've looked at John Paul II. Uh, maybe he's a good person to draw an analogy with. He wants to see faith and reason working together. To, you know, the two wings he, this is a metaphor he has for in order that um, humans might achieve their the, their full potential. Um, that our reason might be perfected by faith and that our faith might be deepened by reason. Um, And it's a kind of humanism, humanization. uh, And that there's a, I think we see this in the current Pope uh, as well, that Pope Benedict also worries that a secular culture is um, not fully human because it doesn't reach beyond um, our, our, our strict sort of material lives and so on. And Chesterton has his own way of expressing that. Um, he says that, uh, uh, we humans want life to be romantic and that's the term he uses. Romance is a kind of key element. And you think about it, well, what's, a, rom- what's like a romantic comedy, typical romantic comedy, boy meets girl, but Hey, it's not just boy meets girl. It's the improbability of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's the, it's the, it's the big time CEO who meets the, um, the artist, uh, who, who, you know, devil may care, free spirit artist. And so there's a kind of clash. They're not, they don't seem like it's not natural that they would go, that they would fall in love. Mm -hmm. And all those, all the romances are like that. It's the, uh, Romeo and Juliet separated by their family quarrels. And it's the, in spite of quality of love, not the because of quality of love that makes for romance. And so what Chesterton says is that romance is a romantic view of life is that in, the su- in one sense, things are fitting, and in the other sense, uh, things are alien or strange or new. Mm-hmm. So it's both, um, uh, he tells a wonderful story at the beginning of this book. Uh, of uh, He said this book is really about uh, romance, and it, originally he was going to write a book, write a, write a novel to express it about a yachtsman who leaves England to discover the new world, gets lost on his journey, and winds up landing on the beach in Brighton, which is a kind of English resort, and then storms the beach and plants the British flag in front of uh, uh, the pavilion there, which looks like a um, uh, an Asian temple. Mm-hmm. It was built in the 19th century to look like an Asian temple. And as he's doing it, he suddenly realizes that he hasn't discovered a new land, but he's actually come home again. <laughs> and it's funny and amusing, but what, what he says there is that this captures the true nature of what we desire, both to be... Uh, have wonder at the world and to be welcomed by the world. So it's wonder and welcome together that he thinks are the, are the things that we seek. And that um, Christianity with the doctrine of the incarnation is a, both an affirmation through Christ, uh, the Son of uh, God, becoming man, is obviously uh, a, a, an affirmation of our humanity. But the fact that he's very God, he's very man and very God, very very divine a divine inhuman, that the divine dimension pulls us and stretches us beyond uh, our natural lives. So it's that combination together that he thinks Christianity um, provides us with a way that we can both be angry at the world and at the same time love the world, be, be, feel like this is where we belong, and at the same time be amazed uh, at um, the miracle of, uh, uh, the miracle of the world as it is. So that's a pretty powerful insight, I think. Mm-hmm. And that goes beyond his clever phrasing and so on. A lot of people criticize Chesterton and say that, you know, he's just kind of a clever rhetorical writer. Eh, you know, I, I like it myself. I mean, I, could, mm-hmm. I like a well-turned sentence. But I think it's selling him short. He really does have a, a vision of the ordinariness and the extraordinariness of the life of faith. Uh, that the life of faith both roots you in reality and also um, urges you towards uh, something completely uh, otherworldly. So you think about marriage and the celibate life. Mm -hmm. Christianity affirms both. Um, uh, Marriage, I mean, what could be more, I don't know, what could be more of an affirmation of our biological identities and our role in the natural life cycle? And then, at the same time, Christianity affirms uh, the religious life, the life of celibacy, and what could be more otherworldly? What could be more? What could be more of an aspiration beyond the limitations of biological life?
0: It's all paradox, isn't it? That's
1: one of his views, right? That paradox, at its worst, are two contradictions that you don't know what to do with. And for Chesterton, life is paradoxical. And Christianity and the Doctrine of the Incarnation especially provides you with a balancing point where the paradox don't conflict with each other, they don't fight against each other, they don't destroy each other.
0: Now we're coming to the close of the series that we we began weeks ago. What is your hope for someone who has been following us?
1: Well, I mean, I teach this material to my students, and uh, um, I have have two goals, I think, uh, with my students. Um, one goal is that um, the students learn about enough about what it means to be an intellectual, so to speak, that they are able to see that most most contemporary criticisms of Christianity as um, mindless are based on a very superficial understanding of what it means to be mindful, um, mm-hmm. so that they don't so that. The students and listeners don't, don't leave, don't enter into their adult lives um, with a sort of easy uh, rejection of Christianity based on these kind of simplistic uh, claims about it being ill-considered or lacking in, in reason or um, lacking in critical uh, sensibility, or so on and so forth. Now, of course, most listeners to this program are probably not in that camp. There are already people who are who have affirmed the Christian faith. Um, and for those students, I have plenty of students who have fallen to that camp as well. And for them, I want them to, this material, think about St. Thomas Aquinas and the kind of subtlety and nuance about the relation of faith and reason, the role of arguments in theology. They're not simple points. Uh, or John Paul II and his very powerful vision of the unity of faith and reason, that, uh, that the life of inquiry, critical thought, um, reflection, exploration, is, um, has a complex and fruitful relationship to uh, the, the, uh, the doctrines of the faith, uh, the teachings of the church, um, and that it's not just a matter of sort of lining up the arguments uh, against, the outs- against the critics or for um, the faith, that apologetics is not just defending the faith against critics. Obviously, that's an important element. But it's also an opportunity to uh, see more more deeply um, the, the 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 beauty of uh, the truths of faith and the way that they can penetrate into all kinds of different inquiries. I think the Stephen Barr treatment of science is a really good example of that. It's not just to defeat the materialist assumptions of critics of Christianity. You read his book and you feel like you're 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 you're, you're you're listening to a scientist talk, talk who takes joy in the way in which scientific discoveries illuminate and deepen the truths of faith. And so I, I hope I hope listeners um, uh, take that away. Don't just sort of bone up on the arguments to to defeat the critics. Uh, do that, but also see the arguments as an opportunity to Turn black and white faith into technicolor.
0: Thank you, Professor Reno. Welcome. You've been listening to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno.